If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been looking at uh, what the, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the announcement that Jesus the Messiah indeed is coming to deliver his people from their enemy. And see, for years and years, the assumption was that the Messiah was going to deliver them from the enemy that is Rome, that Rome was the issue, that they were the issue, all these outside things. There was always something that the people felt like, man, God needs to fix that thing. And in reality, what we're going to see today is that it's not, it's not them. It's not that thing. It's the heart in us that needs to get changed. It's the wickedness in the hearts of every man and woman that's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. And so today, I know in our culture, there's a loud movement in general in so many different things. You can find a group of people that have a different idea of what is going to fix everything. And the problem is, is that none of those things are actually going to solve the issue because the issue is a sinful heart outside of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that makes sense. And Really, we got to remember that the people in this passage, this is 2,000 years ago, right? 2,020-something years ago. But it's the same thing as today. People are desperate to be saved from death, from sin. And until we identify that Jesus Christ is the answer, we're going to be trapped in that sin. Amen? And so that's what we're looking today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, awesome. Uh, Let's begin here with the first couple verses just to get some setting. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And we'll pause it right there. That gives us the setting. And we're going to see that Luke has done this in, in several chapters. He's done this in chapter one. He's done this in chapter two. He's doing it now in chapter three. We talked about how wise and like educated and smart Luke is, right? And he's a Gentile. So he's writing to, originally to a man named Theophilus, very Roman Greek name, right? And he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to us. He's letting us know that the gospel is not just for Jews. It's for other people as well. It's for the Gentiles. And so in this case, what he's doing though, is he's saying, this is the scene. This is what Rome looked like. This is what the world looked like at the time. And for the Jews, honestly, it was a very dark era because you have these people being listed. He gives you five political leaders, a couple religious leaders. And it just shows us that Luke was, was like aware of the things going on in the world and he cataloged it well. And so if we didn't have the section, we wouldn't quite know exactly when this was all happening. Right? So he tells us this is the season. Tiberius Caesar was gnarly, right? I mean, anytime we have a Caesar in regards to like overseeing like Jewish people, it's going to be bad news, right? And so in particular, in this case, I believe it was in uh, 19 AD that he actually kicked all of the Jews out of Italy. He said, we don't want Jews here. So completely anti-Semitic. And he kept 4,000 Jews that were military age and basically assigned them to like suicide missions. So he basically told them, you can go fight on these islands against these banditi. They were, <laughs> that was a cool Sicilian Italian word for these bandits that are like, they're just bad news. And we aren't going to send our guys because they'll get killed. We'll send the Jewish guys that we kept back. So really bad, dark season for the Jews in that sense. Pontius Pilate was governing of Judea. Um, I don't know about you guys, but Pontius Pilate, right? We know he's involved with some bad stuff, right? He yielded to the people's request for Jesus to be crucified. 
So he's the one overseeing Judea. You have this Caesar overseeing the area that, that can't stand Jews. And then we have these tetrarchs. It says Herod, Philip, uh, Licinius. There is actually a fourth brother. These are all brothers, um, Archelius. And the four of these guys were tetrarchs. Tetrarch means a ruler of a quarter. So they basically all ruled a region to like different regions, but they ruled together. They were the sons of Herod, Herod the Great, who gave the command to, to kill all of the Jewish children, uh, Jewish male children, two years and under. So think about the political climate right here. This is a setting where the Jews are thinking, man, we are losing hope that we're going to get out of this thing, that we're going to get out from the power of Rome, that we're going to survive. Where are the promises of God? And I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been in situations where I'm like, all right, Lord, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, but everything seems stacked against me. Everything seems bad. And we know how it plays out. So it's easy for us to read this, but you may be going through something right now where you're like, I don't, I don't know how this works out. This is really difficult. The Lord promised that he'd carry me through it, but it doesn't feel like it's going to work out. Well, the Lord is in control. The Lord is going in his perfect timing. He's going to bring exactly what he promised. And so there's these political people that Luke mentions. And the last two that he mentions are Annas and Caiaphas. They're high priests, it says. In this system, there was no such thing as more than one high priest. There should only be one. And Luke is almost saying that there's two high priests, almost in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Because Annas was the high priest, but Rome deposed of him because he was getting involved with like corrupt things. And so Caiaphas, his son-in-law, took role as the official high priest. But everyone knew that Annas, through like corruption, still controlled everything. So you have two really wicked guys <laughs> working to run the like the the religion that was all of like honoring what should have been the law of Moses and the temple. So you have a bad political climate and you're being ruled by a foreign people and your temple and your religion are being run by a bunch of corrupt people. So like, where do you go to for refuge at this point? When the church is a mess, when the church is corrupt and the political environment around you is just absolutely falling apart and it's very dark, you'd go, man, we're starting to lose hope. I don't know if that rings with us at all. But like the idea of a church moving away and being corrupt and going into things they shouldn't be going into, leaving truth and creating new things, they say, this is what's going to keep us. This is what's going to bring honor. And we know that it just didn't, right? Like legalism and uh, ritualistic things, those never would bring peace with God. It was the faith that, man, someone more righteous, the Savior, is going to come and deliver us from the lie, amen? And so today we have the same thing where we see a political climate and I think a compromised church. And sometimes we get frustrated and go, man, what is this going to work out to be? But here's the good news. Look at the rest of verse two. It says at the same time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zecharias in the wilderness. And see, that's a big statement because this means that while everything looked so terrible, remember this has been 18 years since the end of Luke two. So last week we saw the end of Luke 2 where Jesus is a boy, he's 12 years old and he's growing up. It's 18 years later. And you got to think that people are thinking, well, hey, I thought the Messiah was coming. I thought the forerunner was coming. It's been 30 years since the announcement that that was going to happen. And it just seems like it's getting more and more dark. Well, here's John in the wilderness receiving the word of the Lord. And remember the word of the Lord, this was a fresh thing. Before the announcement of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, there's 400 years of prophetic silence. And so the fact that the word is coming means that the Lord is moving. That's how the Lord works, right? The word goes out, 
it impacts the hearts and lives of the people. And then the Lord starts to move through his people. And so for John, he's out here in the wilderness. And I think it's kind of cool. He's basically in the wilderness of the Jordan. And if you remember in Luke 117, Gabriel told Zacharias that his son Elijah would go out in the spirit. Or I'm sorry, his son John about to go out in the spirit of Elijah. Remember? So he, basically the idea was, hey, you're going to be like that forerunner to Jesus. And we know that Elijah is to come first, according to Malachi 4, 5, I believe it is, that he's supposed to come before the coming of Jesus. And so he's out in the wilderness of the Jordan. That's actually the place where Elijah went up in that chariot and took off when he left his mantle to Elisha. It's the same location. So it's almost like he's picking up that ministry of Elijah in the same region. And he says the way that Elijah was out here waiting for the Lord, he lived in the wilderness. If you remember 1 Kings 17, I think it is, right? He goes, I'm going to go live out in the wilderness. The birds are going to feed me. He says, the river is going to give me my water that I need. And then when it's time, I'm going to go. When the word has come to me, I will go to the leadership who was Ahab in Elijah's day and tell them that the Lord is at work and the Lord is going to end this drought and bring new rain to prove that he is the Lord. And so to me, I think John's out there going, well, I've already been told that I'm supposed to be like Elijah. So he goes out and he hangs out in the wilderness. We know that he's 30 years old and he was of the line of Abijah, which meant he was a Levite. At 30 years old, you usually go work in the temple. Right. That was the age where it was like, all right, you've reached maturity. 25, you'd take an apprenticeship. Age 30, you'd go work in the temple. Here's John the Baptist eating locusts, wearing like 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 crazy, <laughs> like hairy material. Right. And a leather belt and eating like just crazy stuff. Right. He's not your normal. He, he might be your normal prophet, but he's not your normal priest for sure, because prophets were always interesting dudes. Right. Like you think about Elijah. Elijah had times where he was like suicidal and calling fire down on people, like really gnarly stuff. And Elisha who calls bears out to attack people because they call him bald, right? Like these are wild things. <laughs> Chuck Smith always said like, hey, be, be nice to bald guys, you know? <laughs> so, but in this case, you have John. He's like, man, I'm not going to go into what's assumed the normal ritualistic service because I've been called to something different. And I think that's huge. Think of the pressures around John that said, hey, you're supposed to be the forerunner. Shouldn't you be at the temple? Shouldn't you be doing the things that we assume you should be doing? He says, no, I have a different calling in the Lord. And it's the exact place he needed to be. He was out in the wilderness with the message of salvation because the people of the Jews were in a spiritual wilderness needing salvation. And we know that the Lord blesses those who diligently seek him. I believe it's Hebrews 11, 6 that talks about that. And see, he goes out in the wilderness, says, you want to hear this message? Come seek it. You come out to the wilderness, you identify that you need this message and you will get the salvation that you're looking for. Does that make sense? So that's what he's doing out here in, by the Jordan in the wilderness. And look at verses three through six. It says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so this is a really awesome thing. We find out what exactly he was doing. So we know that, first of all, we're going to see that John is going to prepare the people for the Messiah, right? That's his job. If the Messiah is the bridegroom, which we know Jesus was, John at, at, at greatest is the best man, 
right? So he's not the groom. He's not the focus point, but he's there to make sure everything's going to run smoothly when the bridegroom shows up. And so he's there to make sure, hey, everyone, you need to prepare. And it says that he was preaching a baptism unto repentance for the remission of sins. And see, this is big because that word preaching actually is this idea of heralding something, of going out and, and shouting out to the people, proclaiming a message. And see, a herald was someone that was hired by a king, right? Like in that time, if Rome had an announcement, they'd hire a guy called a herald that would go out and just proclaim the message. The message was not something that the herald created. He just proclaimed it. I think this is big. The, the idea as believers, what we're to do, according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, is to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that Jesus has commanded us. I don't need to go out and tell them what I feel like is important. I don't need to go out and tell them what I believe about something. God forbid, right? My opinion is pretty useless. <laughs> but the Lord's word, that's the message of hope. And so John says, man, I'm just waiting for that word to come. We know that in Luke 180, it said that John just went out to the wilderness. He waited for years until the manifestation of the message would come to him. And now that it's come, he says, man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell everyone that they need to get ready. And the way they're going to need to get ready is by being baptized unto repentance. What that means is there's a water baptism that's going to happen here. And I think it, Pastor Xavier used to always talk about this at Pasadena, right? Like baptism will not save you. If you go and jump in the water and get out and it's just an outward thing and you're not actually doing anything about it, you're not actually repenting from your sin. You're just a wet sinner, right? And so in this case, you have John the Baptist saying, hey, we're going to do a baptism, but it marks your desire to repent, to turn from the things that you used to participate in. That sinful nature of yours yielding to the flesh, he says, and that is going to lead to the remission of sins. That word remission is like freedom. It's liberty. It's being removed from the oppression of the enemy, which is sin. And I don't know about you guys, but right now, that's a, oppression is like a word that gets thrown around a lot right now. Oppression. Everyone is oppressed one way or another. And it's kind of crazy. Right now, you have white people being like, we're being oppressed because of our whiteness, right? Like there's, and then, there's this thing that that came because, again, blacks were oppressed in certain ways, right? We know this. There's all these things. But these are surface-level surface oppressions compared to the, the reality that the oppression of sin will lead to eternal separation from God. And see, this is the matter. This is the thing that really, really matters. He says, you need freedom from the enemy, but you're thinking about Rome. You're mad that Rome is here holding you down. You need, you need permission and freedom and liberty from yourself from your sin, from your heart. And let's be clear, if we all yielded to the spirit today, everyone in the world, we wouldn't have to talk about any other kind of oppression. Like the spirit of God would bring love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, goodness, you know, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. Everyone would be loving their neighbor as themselves if they would yield to the spirit. That's why it's so important. This is the first matter of the issue. Everything else falls under that. I'm okay having those conversations after we acknowledge that you have to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. And so once we do that, he says, look, you got to repent though. You're going to have to live in a way that's different than before you got in the water, right? Like you come here and go, oh, cool, I'm going to take a dip and I'm going to get out and I'm going to be totally good now. Like, no, your heart, don't do this through like just the motion of getting into the water. Actually, walk out and do this and it'll lead to the remission of your sins. And we know that because 
the heart would say, I believe I'm being washed of the filthiness of my life in that time. That's what this baptism points. You remember, Jesus hasn't come yet. So this isn't a baptism that says I'm being buried with Jesus and resurrected with Jesus. That's what we've been baptized into after the cross and resurrection. At this point, it's an acknowledgement, man, I'm filthy. I need to be clean. And see, it's actually a practice that the Jews would do to bring in Gentile proselytes. So the idea was, hey, you guys want to come into the Jewish faith, to the faith of Israel, you'd have to acknowledge that you were dirty and need to be cleansed. That was one of the things. So for John to be telling this to Jews, because remember, he's in the area of the Jordan. He's like, you guys are filthy. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be like a trip for Jews to hear, right? Like, what do you mean we have to be baptized? We're children of Abraham. We're not filthy Gentiles. We don't need this. But the reality is all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And see, we need a savior. We need a propitiation for our sins, someone to remove, to take care of that, the wages. And 1 John 4.10 says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And see, through Jesus, we now have that liberty from oppression. We now have been delivered from that sin that would separate us from God. And really, what it says here in verses uh, what four through six here in this section, this is Luke quoting Isaiah 43 through five. And it's this, this idea that the forerunner would come before the Messiah. And what Luke is saying is John is fulfilling that passage of, of, of messianic prophecy. He's not the Messiah, but he's preparing the way for the Messiah. Does that make sense? And so it's kind of cool because he's saying things like, you know, go prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight and, Fill the valleys and every mountain and hill brought low, crooked places made straight, the rough way smooth. And before a king came into town, right, they would have people go before the road. His servants would go and smooth out the road because we're not talking about like paved, you know, Dallas tollways, right? We're talking about <laughs> bumpy, rocky roads with dirt and pits and mountains and all kinds of things. The people would go before and they, as best as they could, they would try to make a smooth path. But let's be clear, they could never make it perfectly smooth. But the idea was, hey, try your best because the king's coming to town. I think this is huge. This is our intention with the Lord. I'm going to try to keep my account short with the Lord as short as possible. I know I can't be perfect, but I'm going to try to prepare the way. Like, man, I'm going to try to commit to these things. Where I mess up, he's going to make it straight. John was to prepare the way, but it says who's going to actually make these crooked things straight? He is. The king's going to make those things straight. I'm going to try to make the path straight. I'm going to try to level it out. And see, I look at this section and it's like, we're talking about these, just these, these crooked ways, these valleys of, uh, that are empty, these mountains that seem like impossible to get over, these crooked places that need to be made straight, and these rough things. To me, I believe there's this message in this from Luke that says, I'm talking to men that need to fix their hearts. And you could try as much as you can, but at the end of the day, even as you try to prepare, there's only Jesus that can actually fill the empty things in your heart. He can fill those valleys. He can fix those mountains, those things you just can't get over in your heart. He says, man, I have forgiveness for that. I have healing for those things. He says, the crookedness in your heart to do evil, I can make straight. He says, but you're going to have to trust in me. You're going to have to, first of all, admit that you're a sinner and come and want to be cleansed. Amen. And see, that's a hard message to Jews who said, well, I thought I was cleansed because I was a child of Abraham, because I was keeping ritualistic things. John's like, no, that's not why I'm, that's why I'm not in the temple. That's why I'm out here telling you that thing's a mess right now. Church will not save you. 
Water baptism will not save you. A heart that is willing to repent, turn, and trust in Jesus for the remission of sins, that'll save you. And that's the message that we have here. And the last thing in verse 6, it's funny because all the Gospels, they quote this section about John the Baptist, but they don't add that last verse, which is from Isaiah 40, verse 5, where it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Because the other ones are written more with a Jewish mindset, right? Like the Jews, of course, were waiting for the Messiah. Luke adds this on, and it's a quote from Isaiah to say, everyone's going to be able to participate in this. All flesh. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You need to recognize that you are a sinner in need of saving. Amen? And it, we know that John, when he saw Jesus, according to John 1, it's not in this section, but at the baptism of Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sin of the Jews. Not to come deliver the Jews from Rome, but to take away the sins of the world. And say, praise the Lord for that, because I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I, in their mind at the time, I was good for nothing but heating the, the, the fires of hell. But Jesus is not, no, no, I created you with the intention of you being brought into me. Fill up my spirit and spend eternity with me if you believe upon Jesus Christ. So that's what we have here. And so he's preparing the people. And then beginning in verse 7, he's going to preach to the people. Look at what it says in verse 7 through 9. It says, then he said to the, multi the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves we have abraham as our father for i say to you that god is able to raise up children to abraham from these stones and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so <laughs> I don't know. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. John the Baptist is a guy that you probably wouldn't hire at your church. <laughs> like just generally speaking, you're like, this guy, he's, he's eating bugs and stuff and he's wearing weird outfits and he doesn't want to come to the church building. He's out preaching to people. Um, these are like things that like, I think the, the, the church now in America would be like, this is weird. Then he gets multitudes. Like, I don't know about you guys, but this is a common prayer. As you can see multitudes, Lord, give me multitudes to preach to. Right. And then Multitudes show up. Most people would say, hey, don't step on anyone's toes. Make sure you like don't like, you know, preach the gospel too hard. Make sure it's inclusive. Make sure it's just the gospel is offensive and people need to be offended. My brother Rex Roar mentioned that recently. It just stuck with me. Just the idea of, man, we need to be ready to realize that the gospel is a dividing thing. And honestly, we're in scary territory if we think we're preaching the gospel and everyone's our buddy still. Like, I'm not out here to make enemies. Let me be clear. But Jesus said, this is the reality. Families are going to be divided over this gospel. You're either like with me or you're against me, right? And so John sees these people. He's like, this is great. Giant crowds, right? What's the first thing he does? He goes, you got a whole bunch of snakes. <laughs> You're like, what? Like, dude, I just came out to get baptized, right? Like, what are you doing? I thought I just had to get baptized. This would be great. He says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? In other words, he's like, who told you to even come out here? Why are you here? And this is interesting because in Matthew, we find out that there were Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes that showed up and he greeted them as brood of vipers. And so what I'm thinking is he's looking out and seeing, oh, look at these guys showing up. They want in on this new movement of the Lord. The Pharisees and Sadducees are coming out so they can still have their influence. They can still be here and try to convince people to do the old ritualistic ways that maybe if they just do this water baptism, they can then say they've fulfilled the law and stuff. He says, no, no, no. He says, we need sincerity. 
that's what John is getting to here. He's saying, you guys are a bunch of snakes because snakes are deceptive. They're crafty, right? Like you guys have an agenda as you come out here. And I just think that's really interesting because how many people, including myself, have gone through the motions of things and think, okay, cool, I'm saved by those things. And John would say, you're not saved by any of that if your heart's not right. This comes back to a heart issue. Church attendance will not save us. Church planting will not save us. But committing our hearts to the Lord and doing the things he calls us to do, like that's outward expression of like the fact that the Lord is in control of our lives as Lord and Savior. But here are these, these guys, they're showing up and they're, he just tells them, he goes, you guys aren't bearing fruits worthy of repentance. That's how I can tell you're a bunch of snakes. Like think about telling a giant mega church of full of people on a Sunday morning. Hey, you guys are saying you're Christians, but you're not because I'm seeing your life and you're still doing all the things you used to do. You haven't repented. You're a bunch of phonies. Like that's a hard message to give. And I think as a teacher, you'd be like, I risk losing all the people that I want to talk to. But John says, look, if we're going to be insincere about this, I don't want you around because you're going to corrupt the sincere that are here to do it rightly. I think that's huge. Right. Like I believe it's first Corinthians 15, 33. This is, you know, do like evil company corrupts good habits. You have people being baptized because they say, man, I'm a sinner and I'm wicked. I need to repent. And they're sincere. And then you have other people who are like, I'm just going to get in the water. I can keep doing the things I want to do. They're going to stumble their brothers away from this message that John is bringing. So John's like, man, get out of here if you don't want to be serious about the things of the Lord. But that said, he's saying, I have a solution. I'm not saying just get lost. How about this? Just turn your heart and sincerity to the Lord. I would love for all of you to stay here. The whole multitude can stay here and participate, but don't do it in insincerity. And he even calls out. He says, look, you guys are saying things like, hey, Abraham's our father. Therefore, we're good. This was a real idea was like, well, hey, my connection to my forefathers makes me righteous. I've shared with you guys, this is my upbringing. Like I figured, well, my dad was a worship leader at Calvary Chapel. I could tell you about Chuck Smith and Ronald Reese and Xavier Reese, and that therefore makes me holy because they have a relationship with God. That's ridiculous, right? That's like me thinking I have billions of dollars because like, you know, Elon Musk has billions of dollars. That has nothing to do with me. Like that would that actually be robbery if I went and tried to use his money and stuff, right? I'd get in big trouble, right? So in this case, he says, you can't, you can't rely on those things. He says, do you think God just wanted to create some people that were robots that served him and belonged to him? He'd make the stones into people. He says, he wants your love. He wants your heart. He wants you to actually seek him and walk after him. And he says, and I got news for you. If you don't want to do this, this is the reality of it. If you think it's not worth following the Lord, man, there's an ax that's coming to chop down the trees that don't bear fruit. And we look at this and again, we might go, man, John is so mean. I can't believe that John is saying such crazy heavy things. But here's the deal. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 18 through 20. He said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So here's John going before the Messiah, Jesus, and saying the things really before Jesus even gets there and says them. So we know this isn't just John being a crazy guy. Some people would call him, oh, you're just being like legalistic or something, John. This is the message of Jesus Christ. That if you don't surrender your life to the Lord, be filled with the Spirit and walk in those good works, walk in the fruit of the Spirit by the power of the Messiah, the King, the Lamb of God, Jesus, then, man, you're going to be thrown into a very real place of judgment. 
There's another thing in church right now that people want to pretend that hell's not real. I wish hell wasn't real, right? We all do. We wish that hell was not a real place. Matthew 25, 41 and 46, Jesus himself spoke of hell. And he said, there's a real place there where people that do not want to be with God in, on this earth in their lifetime, they won't spend eternity with God. They'll be separated. There's only one place. It was the place created for Satan and for his angels. It wasn't created for man. But it's the only other option. If you don't want to be with God now, why would you be with God for eternity? You have to go to that other place. He says, I don't want that to be the case. But it's a very real reality. For those that do put their trust in the Lord, they have the righteous receive eternal life. And it's not because of our goodness, but because of his. Amen? Amen. And so this is the message. Man, there's real judgment, real fire coming. And so look at verse 10 through 14. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So this is a wonderful thing. So we might think, man, John, you're being mean. You're calling people snakes. You're telling people to, to, to repent and be sincere or go home. And they actually respond with like, dude, what do we do then? This is the goal of any teacher, of any pastor, of anyone, that the audience would actually hear the message and respond to it. And so anyone that's going to tell you, hey, man, you got to be really nice and gentle and always, we know that, be you know, gentle as doves, but wise as serpents, as Jesus would say. But the idea is, man, we preach with truth. We preach with boldness. And we're going to see John held no punches against anyone because he knew the reality was there was an urgency. That, man, if you don't turn now, no man's promised tomorrow. And there's a very real hell. There's a very real judgment. But the good news is there's a very real Savior in Jesus Christ. And he loves us. And it's not by being perfect. It's not by... We're not weighing out our good works versus our bad works. It's just when we believe that Jesus is the Lord, we live by it. When we believe something, we live by it. I've told everyone, I believe in gravity, therefore I don't jump off of high buildings, right? It's really basic. If I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, I don't just treat him as Savior. I treat him as, 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 my, as my king, as my leader, as my guide. My life now is submitted to him. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect. I may mess up, but I come back to him as my Savior and return to him as my Lord. And so this is the process that he's talking about. And so the people hear it and they're like, wow, what should we do then? They're like, we don't want to get chopped down and thrown into fire. That's a good, that's a good reason to come to Jesus. Okay. If for nothing else, that's the first place to start. I don't want to go to the fireplace. Right. Okay. So he says, here's how you can do this. Generally this first verse 10, it says the people. So this is just kind of a general population here. He says, here's what you should do. If you have two tunics, which many people wore two layers at this time, he said, give to him who has none and who has food, let him do likewise. So in other words, the things that you have, be hospitable and gracious with. Basically, he's telling them, love your neighbor as yourself by being generous. Like there's a real noble idea. Like it's the most basic thing. We teach kids this when they're little, right? Like share, share, be nice. Like these are the general things that the Lord would say, if you want to represent me well, go out and do that. And so many times we think that this is, um, I don't know, kind of like, like, well, okay, I can do that if people are nice to me, right? It's real conditional. 
Jesus said in, in Luke 6.35, he said, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. And I know this because I am the unthankful and evil way too many times. <laughs> and the Lord's so good to give his spirit, to give his voice, to give his leading. Like I am, I hope that I don't look at people and go like, oh, I need to treat the unthankful and evil. Like hopefully I look at myself and go, I am the unthankful and evil. Therefore, I should be generous to everyone. And then he gets more specific. It says the tax collectors, the IRS that's there, right? Okay. These guys say, hey, what should we do? Right? He says, what you need to do is stop cheating people. <laughs> stop stealing from people. He says, don't collect any more than what you're supposed to. And we know in this time, like Matthew, when he was a Levi, when he was a tax collector, right? You'd bid for a lot from Rome and say, I'm going to tax these people based on what Rome's given me. And everything above what I've paid for, I can like charge and make money on it. And so that's why tax collectors were hated. Not only were you working for Rome to tax your own people, but they knew that like, dude, you're making a living by cheating me, by charging me money. That, like you're a middleman for the guy that's reigning over me. They hated the tax collectors. And it's real simple. He says, hey, I'm not telling you, you can't be a tax collector. I'm just telling you not to be a bad tax collector. I think about Zacchaeus, and I think it's Luke 19, right? Zacchaeus climbed a tree because he's like, I want to see what God is. He's a wee little man, right, Zacchaeus? We sing the song, the wee little man. And he climbs a tree to see Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, hey, I'm going to go to your house today because you desired to see me. And this is the heart. It was, I just want to see Jesus. Jesus says, I see you there. I'm going to hang out with you, and I'm going to tell you what you need to do. I'm just going to sit with you. I'm going to counsel you. And what does Zacchaeus do? How has he changed from that encounter with Jesus? He says, I'm going to go restore everyone I cheated. Like, that's huge. Not only did he say, I'm going to stop cheating people. I'm going to go restore the people that I messed up on. And I think we need to use wisdom and discernment. I counsel younger men sometimes. They're like, no, I'm a believer. I'm a married man. I need to go talk to all my ex-girlfriends. And I'm like, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Tell your wife to reach out. Maybe I don't even suggest that. That's bad news, right? But be wise on the things that you can fix and reconcile without putting yourself in, in, in jeopardy to walk away from the Lord. Don't go back to the bars and the clubs you used to go to and apologize to everyone. I think that's crazy. Start living differently to where maybe those people from the bars and clubs will come and seek out what's changed in your life. I think I've had that happen where people are like, dude, there's something weird about this guy now. I've always been weird, but now I'm weird for Jesus, right? <laughs> and so they gave it time. It's been 12, 13 years now, right? And they're like, dude, I don't think this is a phase anymore. I'm kind of curious. I might watch online. I might reach out and see. And when I'm going through things, I'll ask this guy for prayer now. I didn't have to go chase them. They came to me because they saw that life of repentance that came to trusting in Jesus. And glory to God, right? And I think we all know that. We've all experienced those kinds of things. And lastly, the soldiers that had asked, hey, what should we do? He's like, dude, stop, stop, uh, stop accusing falsely and intimidating people. And the idea was these are mercenary soldiers. So you can imagine just guys that love to fight, guys that love to kill. And they're like, man, I'm going to get hired. They're, like, they're almost like hitmen, basically. And they're just waiting to get hired by someone to participate in a fight. They don't care about the cause. They just want to participate. And they get paid to do so. Well, what they would commonly do is, A, they'd walk up to regular people that don't like the fight and be like, hey, give me your money. I'm going to rob you, right? Because I'm giant and I'll kill you. And it's like the mob situation. They'd pay into the mob and keep them away. The other thing was these mercenary soldiers would say, hey, I'll go fight for you for X amount of dollars. They'd go win the fight and come back and say, hey, you have to pay me more now because I won the battle. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. So they're intimidating people. They're cheating people. And it's like, man, just have some integrity. Stop trying to take advantage of people around you. 
And really, this all comes down to the idea of what Romans 13.10 says. It says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When the lawyer came and asked Jesus, hey, what's the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your your heart, your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And really, it's one thing. Just love. Love the Lord, and you're going to love your neighbor. If you don't love the Lord, you're not going to love your neighbor. Because you realize that, man, your neighbor was created in the likeness of your God. Therefore, I want to love them. And I think the last thing to note on this is these questions are not, hey, John, how can we be saved? These questions are, how can we live like we're saved? You're not saved by any of these things. I hope we understand that. There's good moral pagans. There's, uh, we've talked about it. All the different cults and subgroups that go out and do nice, good things. They're not saved by those things. It has to be in Christ alone, trusting in him. But when we do that, we're going to live like this. We're going to live in ways of love that are proven because we trust in Jesus. And Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So I think it's just important to remember that. And so the people start to hear this, right? And remember, we're talking about a corrupt religious society at that time. And in verse 15, it says, now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft, will, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So here's John the Baptist. He's not being like the politically driven, diplomatic kind of religious leaders that just want people to show up and hang out. He's calling them snakes. (laughs) He's telling them that they're going to go to fire if they don't trust in the Lord who's coming, the Messiah. And he's been prepping them for the Messiah. So the people are like, wait a minute, maybe John's the Messiah. Like he's different than everyone else. He's bold. Like, I'm kind of listening to this guy. I think he might be the case. And John picks up on this immediately. And I think this is incredible because all he says is, look at, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming that's going to baptize you with fire. And I'm not even worthy of loosening his sandal strap. (laughs) And I don't know when you're in ministry and things are going well and you're doing good things and you're like, man, I just feel the Lord's hand upon me. You start to look at other ministries. Sometimes I would imagine in big ministries, you start judging based on size. Like, dude, I got multitudes. I'm greater than all these other people. I'm better. Humility is a hard thing to find in a guy that has like influence and prominence, I think. And here's John. The minute he gets, he gets told, hey, you're like, you're like the Messiah. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. No Messiah complex here. He's like, I'm not your savior, nor am I worthy to even undo the sandal strap of the Messiah. You're like, well, how do you stay humble? When you're doing, when you've been promised over your life that you're going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, like that would give me an ego trip, I feel like. Like I'd be like, dude, I'm the second most important guy in this whole scene. That's what I would feel like, probably. He's like, I'm going to compare myself to the Messiah, and that's how I'm going to stay humble. I'm going to realize that I may be better than the people running the temple over there. He's like, I won't, I'm not going to say that, but it's true. Those guys are a mess. What I will say is forget looking at people that are below me in all these things. That's not what this is about. I'm going to look to the one that's greater than me. And when I compare myself to him, it's like Isaiah 64, 6. My righteousness is filthy rags, menstrual bones, disgusting, right? Like I'm not good, but he is. 
And this whole idea of the sandal strap, rabbis would be able to tell their apprentices, their students to do just about anything for them except to undo their sandal straps because that was filthy, right? You'd walk around these dirty pitted roads and your feet would be all gross and nasty, right? Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, how, how big that was? Because feet were gross. They didn't have Nikes, man. They didn't have Yeezys. They had, <laughs> they had sandals and exposed feet and dirt under their nose, gross stuff. And he says, man, I'm not even worthy to touch the dirty sandals of the Messiah. Like, get this right. I am not the Messiah, and I'm not worthy to be called the Messiah. And he says, also, my baptism is of water. His will be of fire. I think anyone could take someone else and dump them into water, like, pretty easily, and say, oh, this is holy, and this is good. Like, there's all kinds of weird religions and cults that baptize with water. There's people that, have, that are Christian, non-denominational churches that are just dead churches that are having baptisms. You can't prove if that water is of any great power, if anything has happened. But when someone receives the fire of the Holy Spirit in their life, there's no denying. You're like, this is real. I don't need anyone to prove to me that this church or anyone else is doing what's right. I can see what's real. And we know that in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right, the fire that showed up to prove like, and confirm that, hey, this is the Lord moving. How many times that fire is used as an example of just presence of the Lord? Like again, in, in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah calls fire down and the Lord says, I'm going to prove to you that I'm God. Here's fire. So it proves that the Lord is in it. Fire refines, right? We know, I believe it's in Corinthians, right? Where it talks about, hey, what's left after, after all the stuff that you put on the altar? Like the hay, the stubble, that stuff gets burned away. But the refining stuff, the gold that comes out, the jewels, that stuff remains. So the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it proves in your life the things that really are of the Lord and the things that are not. And it gives you power, that dunamis power, like Acts 1.8 talks about, that Jesus promised. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth when you receive that power, that dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. And so John's like, dude, I'm dipping you in water. <laughs> the Lord's going to do this thing where you're like on fire. And it's funny because we use this terminology and new believers are like, wait, I'm going to catch on fire when I come to Jesus? I thought I was getting away from the fire, right? But here's the deal. The fire that is that fuel, that power, that refinement in the Lord is the very same fire that if you refuse it, it judges. It's going to burn away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to prove that you should have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The same way he revealed himself to everyone in Abraham's bosom and those that were held captive in Hades. He says, I am the fulfillment of all things. You should have believed in me or you did believe in me. Praise the Lord for that. Come with me. That same fire of the Holy Spirit. It either shows that you are of the Lord or it's that fire that's getting, you're going to be baptized in a bad way by fire. That's a crazy statement, right? Like baptized by fire. We pray for that as believers in a good way. We fear for that, for those that haven't trusted in Jesus. The urgency is here. And so the people are hearing this and they're like, man, this is really bad. And John just says, look it, this is why you have to have fruits in your life. Because like Jesus said back in Matthew that I read earlier, he said, they're going to know you by your fruit. They're going to know you by the things coming out of your life. And he says, he has this winnowing fan. It's almost, you know, when they, I don't know, we don't know anything about grain, right? Here we are living in 2021 in America. But the idea is you would take the grain and you'd, you'd shake it up with this, this thing and you'd brush it out with the fan and it would blow away the shaft and the grain would be left. And it says, he's going to take the grain into his barn. That's like his, that's his place. The Lord's going to take to his place those that are proven to be real. The leftover stuff that didn't trust in the Lord, that stuff's going to get blown away. They're going to go away into the fire. Man, we don't, we don't want that for anyone. 
That's why we want to preach this and exhort people. Just as it said in verse 18, John the Baptist exhorted the people and he preached the people. And I think this is important. The word for preached in verse 18 is the word we get evangelism from. It's the good news. It's the gospel. So the first, in verse three, he's preaching people like, hey, I have a proclamation. Savior's coming, but you got to trust in him. In this verse, it's basically saying if the good news is he's, he loves you. He cares for you. He desires for you to walk in these things. He is the Lamb of God that takes away in the world, but you're going to have to trust in him. Um, look at verse 19 and 20. It says, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. So it seems like a little side note, but we're talking about the boldness of John the Baptist. He's not afraid to call out multitudes of people and say, you got to be sincere. The last thing that's mentioned here is Luke's like, dude, John the Baptist was pretty wild and crazy. He even called out like Herod that was, that was there because he had taken his sister-in-law as his wife, who, by the way, was also his niece. Very weird, right? Springer type stuff, right? So he's like, I'm going to, in one action, become my own nephew <laughs> by marriage, right? Like, that's weird. Uh, and I'm going to marry my sister-in-law. And John's like, are you kidding me? You guys are okay with this? This is what's being permitted. And no one's calling out sin. I think this is big because I may have, I've shared this with you guys. I think there's people that are high. I don't know what the word is, but much more, I guess the word is like politically minded than I am to some extent. They stay up with all the things happening in politics and they're mad. And here's the deal. They're posting about like, I don't know, GOP and all these things that I know nothing about. But when it comes to sin, of a government, sin of a leader, we should be ready to call that out as a people of God. I was reading this week, like the, the idea that, oh, that's idolatry if we're fighting for religious freedom. I get we can get carried away with anything, but we should never stop calling out sin. I believe John's heart was the hope that Herod would repent. It wasn't to make Herod look bad. It was Herod needs Jesus as well. Herod needs a savior. How do we let him know? It says in Leviticus that this is an unclean thing. You can't be marrying your niece and your sister-in-law. I don't know why I'm explaining this to you, right? John's like, this is crazy. But here you are doing this. It's just, it's, it's filthy. It's not clean. It's divisive in your own household with your family. It's so selfish. It's not loving your neighbor. And, you're, and all the people are just letting this happen. Like we've talked about abortion things in, in the past few weeks, right? Like this is a sin issue. I don't care about economy and globalism things as much as I care about like, dude, this is sin, right? Um, there's just blatant things that need to be called out in those regards. And we need to know the time and place. But John's like, hey, this is the time and place. The leader's in like glaring sin that's made apparent by studying the word of God. Therefore, I'm going to call it out. I think that's really important to make sure we know our place. But remember, the first thing is, hey, I'm preaching the good news. I'm baptizing people. That said, I'm not going to ignore the evil that's happening right outside our doorstep. So just an interesting note on that. So Luke's saying, hey, man, he's so crazy that he even like got shut up in prison. And it's it tells us, I believe it is in, let me find the actual cross-reference. Um, in Mark 6, 17, it says that Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So he actually, the king's like, this guy is such a problem. With me. I'm going to oversee this personally and make sure he gets arrested, right? The next verse in Mark, Mark 6, 18, John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
Like he's getting arrested. He's like, hey, I just want to let you know this doesn't change anything. You're still a sinner. Yeah, I'm arrested now. Thanks. But I, now you have to listen to me all the time. And we know that Herod actually would go and inquire of John the Baptist because he was kind of intrigued by him, right? He thought maybe he was this Messiah that even the, the, the appointed kings knew was supposed to come. They'd, he'd go and like ask him almost like a jester, like, oh, you're going to entertain me. I'm going to ask you weird questions. But it said when it came time for Herod to behead John the Baptist on account of Herodias' daughter, he didn't want to. He's like, man, this guy really hasn't done anything wrong. It's like Pilate with Jesus. He's like, I don't know. But that shows that John continued to teach him. And it was unlawful that he was in there. I think it's interesting. They believe that John the Baptist's ministry was three total years. The first year public by, by the river baptizing people. The last two years in jail. Unjustly kept and eventually unjustly killed. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, man, there's no greater than John the Baptist. At least in the kingdom is greater. But the idea is here on the earth who live like it, John the Baptist. And I think it's because his ministry paralleled Jesus's. Both three years long, both unjustly committed of a crime, in charge of a crime, and killed for it. And Jesus must have watched this happen to John and think, man, this is my life. This is what's going to happen to me. But I'm going to continue on the path the Father has. And I think the reality is, man, John the Baptist, Jesus, they didn't end up winning all their friends, influencing people in the way that the world would say we should. They got killed for preaching the gospel in boldness. I think this is huge. This kind of starts to show us what's grain and what's chaff. Grain is bold. Grain is real. It's got substance. It's got integrity. Chaff, man, chaff goes with the wind. Wherever the wind leads, it goes. I'm seeing this in the church. I'm seeing this in my heart at times where I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I want to go there. And the Lord says, you can't do that. That's not truth. I'm going to throw the word out. Wokeness, right? The fact that the church is trying to be woke. We were were once blind. Now we see what else can we be woken to? (laughs) Trust in the Lord. Let the Lord lead and be wise on those things. And I don't mean to say there's not an intention to love people on those things. But when we start sacrificing it, like, truth upon the altar of love, we're in trouble. This is what John is like, dude, I don't care that I'm getting arrested. I'm going to continue to tell you you're in bad, you're in bad shape. You need a savior too. But that's a little parenthetical section. Look at the last thing this is the last thing we're going to look at this morning. And it says in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. So imagine this scene. Matt, remember, John's still baptizing. That little two verses was parenthetical. He hasn't been arrested yet, but it's saying that's eventually what it got to because of his boldness. While he's baptizing people, and there's many people that need to be baptized. If we think about this, Jesus is not one of the people that needs to be baptized. (laughs) Why would he need to be baptized? He has no sin. Why are you being washed? Why are you being cleansed? And we know that in, in Matthew 3, 13 through 15, John the Baptist tells Jesus, I'm not baptizing you. I'm unworthy to like undo your sandal strap. Why am I going to dip you in water and say you, you need repentance? His answer to John is, is permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him. So in other words, he says, I have to fulfill the entire law. All the things that sinners are called to fulfill, all the things that God has called his people to fulfill. He says, I know I don't need the cleansing, but I'm the example and I'm identifying with the sinner. It's not for my own sin that I'm being baptized. It's for their sin. 
Because remember, Jesus wasn't crucified for his own sin. He was crucified for our sin. Jesus commonly identified with the sinner, even in his birth. We talked about this. This lowly birth is coming as a human being baby. Why did he just show up as a grown man at 30? <laughs> He's the creator of all things. But instead, he says, I'm going to identify that just like Hebrews 4.15 says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He's been there. He's endured it. He's endured anti-Semitism. He's endured rejection. He's endured hate. He's endured just rumors and lies about his life. He's endured poverty. He's endured all of those things. And Jesus says, but I can show you that through the power of the spirit, by following the father's will and his voice, you can overcome all of those things. And I'm going to go before you and do it. Even if you can't do it, I will go and die in your place. I will be washed in your place. And then you will be washed in response to that. Amen. And so that's what we see is happening here in this case. And it's crazy because you have the son of God, Jesus, in the water and he prays, right? And in response to his prayer, if anyone wants to say prayer doesn't change anything, this is the only section that says he prayed like Matthew, Mark, John, they don't mention his prayer. Luke focuses on prayer because he's a man. It's like the idea of like men need to pray. So he's like, Jesus prays at this point, the heaven opens up <laughs> immediately after he prays. The voice of God says, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased as the Holy spirit is like a dove, not actually a dove, right? But like a dove looks like a dove <laughs> comes down upon him. So the Holy spirit and God, the father are confirming that Jesus is the son of God, and that he's, he's well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord. In other words, he's the perfect man, and he's the son of God. The two things that, that Luke says, hey, I want to prove this to you. He's both God and man. And not only are they confirming, but we talk about the Trinity all the time. This is in scripture, I believe, I may be wrong on this, but I believe this is like, it is definitely the first, if not the only spot we see all three members of the Godhead, of, of, of God working. You have the father, the first person in heaven, the son, the second person in the water, the spirit, the third person descending like a dove. And it's like, how do you explain this? What are all these things? How are all these things working? How is there a God in the water, a God in the sky, and a God coming down? There's three, but they're one. This is a good example of like the triune God. It's just kind of a neat thing because this is one of those sections that, man, I know we don't understand the Trinity, but it's proven here, at least in some form and fashion. There's a reality to this. Elohim is seen here, the multiplication of God here. Um, and so in this case, we see this, this baptism again. It just reminds me that Jesus was baptized to set the example and identify with us. And this is what he does today. John says, man, prepare. You can do your best. Prepare the way as much as you can, but he's going to be the one that actually fixes it. He's the one that actually makes it smooth and whatnot. Just do your best. Try, as Chuck used to always say, right? Do your best, commit the rest. And it's based on scripture. It's not just shooting in the dark. You're studying the word. You're letting the word change you, transform you through the power of the spirit, and you're going out and living it out. And so the last thing, uh, look at verse 23. It says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Um, this is big because, again, if I'm Jesus, thank the Lord I'm not. If I were Jesus at 12 years old, as I'm proving everyone that I'm the smartest person that ever lived, I'd probably go, it's time to start my ministry now. But he wanted to fulfill the law to be a priest 30 years old, we talked about this earlier. 30 years old was when you could begin the priesthood, so to speak. Even though he wasn't of the line of like the typical line of the Levites, he was the line of Melchizedek, right? He was of the order of Melchizedek. So he was a high priest. He wanted to keep the law, fulfill it, not abolish it. He waits till 30 to start his ministry. 
Um, and that was the perfect timing for whatever reason, the Lord had all these things happening and this is the perfect season. It, age 12 wouldn't have been the right time. Jesus waited upon the father. And this is big, whatever season we're in, even when we feel totally qualified, totally equipped, totally filled with the spirit, wait on the Lord. He'll lead it at the right time. And so the last thing here, I am not going to read all these names. If you think I'm going to read a genealogy right now, I'm not because that's going to be no fun. But I will tell you this. It's in here because it is the word of God. We'll talk about why it's here. I'll give you a couple of highlights and then we're done here. It says um, he was 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. And so that note tells us two things. Luke says, hey, he was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but we all know he ain't the son of Joseph. We talked about this chapter one and two. He's the son of God. But I'm going to give you a genealogy according to the name of Joseph, because in their culture, in their time, to show that biological bloodline that came through Mary, he knows the blood doesn't come through Joseph, it came through Mary, but you don't name women in your genealogy in the sense to prove that a man is in existence. If that makes sense, the government looked at men's names. So he's like, okay, we're going to start with his supposed father, Joseph. But what we can assume from this is basically he's actually using Mary's bloodline and naming the men in Mary's bloodline. Does that make sense? Matthew talks about the legal line to the throne because Matthew wanted to show that Jesus was the Messiah and the King. Mark has no genealogy because Jesus is a servant. You don't care about a servant's backstory, right? You just hire him for a job and that's it. John, the, John's gospel starts with in the beginning, right? The word, the word became flesh, right? And so, I'm sorry, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. That's John. And so the idea is like, he's always been the divine genealogy. He is God. So Luke's basically saying, I'm going to prove to you that he's a man. Here's the bloodline that goes through. You have mentions of things like Judah. So he's the lion of Judah, right? He's of that tribe in verse, uh, verse 26 and verse 30, that's referenced. Uh, in verse 31, he's the son of David. This means that, no, he is of the line of the Messiah, of, of David. The, he, he's the Messiah. He's of the line of the king, right? So he's from the tribe of Judah. He is of the line of David. And then in verse 34, it says the son of Abraham. So this is interesting. You're like, okay, he's definitely that seed, that one that Galatians talk about. He's the seed of Abraham that fulfills that covenant that God had made with Abraham through faith, according to Genesis 15, 6. So you're like, okay, he's the fulfillment thereof. But Luke keeps going onward. And at the very last verse of this chapter in verse 38, he says, Jesus, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. This is big because what that means is Jesus's blood predates Abraham. John just told everyone, it doesn't matter if you're a son of Abraham. That's not what saves you. You need to trust in Jesus and all men, not just children of Abraham, are connected with Jesus. They have a responsibility to respond to Jesus, not just if it stopped Abraham. Okay, there's some logic here that he only belongs to the Jews, but it goes all the way back to Adam, who was the original son of God. And that sounds weird, but hear me out here. Adam didn't have a father or a mother that created him. God did. In that sense, he was a son of God, not like the son of God, like the Godhead, but a son of God. The first Adam failed, though. The first Adam bought into pride. He bought in, he was, he rebelled while his wife Eve was deceived. And in that they brought sin nature into the world. And the Lord says, I'm going to put on flesh. I'm going to tabernacle with men and manifest my love for them by becoming just like them. And Jesus is here in the water getting baptized saying, I'm just like you have come. I'm the son of God. I'm coming. I'm the last Adam. It's a great title. It's not the second Adam because that leaves options for a third and fourth and fifth Adam if Jesus fails. 
Jesus was not coming to fail. He was coming to succeed. He's the last Adam. He's done everything that's required as the son of God to make it possible for us to have peace with God the Father. You see, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's the point that John is getting to here. It doesn't matter if you're a son of Abraham. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are, blood-wise or anything. You have to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Not just say a prayer, but to actually repent. And then we'll see that fruit in your life. As James talks about, there's going to be fruit that comes out of your faith. Faith by itself is dead, right? Like without works, it's dead. Show that you belong to the Lord by living like it. And that's what Jesus says. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, tell him to take up his cross daily and die to himself and follow me. And he says, that's what we need to do. And so that's the message this morning. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. Lord. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your willingness to reveal this to us, Lord. Your willingness to call us to repentance. Your willingness to, to speak to us through your word, Lord. And Father, I pray this morning that we would respond by walking in integrity, generosity, um, just being just upright in our dealings with fellow man. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't do that just out of trying to be good people, Lord, but we would do that because we understand that you are our Lord. You're our Savior, and through the power of your Spirit, it can be done, Lord. So, Father, I pray this morning, Lord, if there's anyone online that may not know you, Lord, I pray that they've heard the gospel this morning, Lord, that Jesus, you have gone to the cross. By your stripes, we are healed. You were bruised for our transgressions and you're wounded for our iniquities, Lord. You, you identified with sinners by going to the cross and dying in our place, Lord. And so I pray right now, if there's anyone that wants to be born again, Lord, I pray that they would just repeat this prayer, this prayer right after me, Lord, that they would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins, to give me a brand new heart, to fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.